I know that Christmas seems like a distant memory now, but I hope I can just, I can just get away with a final mention of it this lunchtime. In particular, I have in mind those round-robin Christmas letters that people send out with their cards. Do you know the ones that I mean? Uh, The idea is, in theory, that people share news with the friends and the acquaintances that they're not in touch with regularly. In practice, however, it is more often an excuse for people to boast about their achievements, or more specifically, about their children's achievements. Some of these have been published in a book. Here's a glowing report about two children in one family. My ears ringing with praise for Jake from his parent-teacher meeting, I got home to find Emily opening a letter saying she had won a place at Oxford. My favourites, though, my absolute favourites, are the ones where the children have turned out to be a disappointment. You have to feel for Roddy. Uh, Roddy is a 22-year-old. Roddy's parents write, Roddy is still finding his way in life. He's got no job, no money, no goals, limited options, and gives his parents grave concern. I expect Roddy is no longer in the will, don't you? Well, look, I was daydreaming, as I do, and I was wondering what Jonah's father would write about him in his round-robin letter. Right at the start of his book, we learn that Jonah is the son of Amittai. What would Amittai tell his friends about his son? Jonah had a really promising start to his career, and I imagine his dad would have been proud. Jonah is a prophet. He hears the word of the Lord, and not every parent can say that about their kids. Imagine the letter, his ears ringing with a fresh revelation from God. I got home to find Jonah packing his bags for a unique missionary journey. Something like that. And Jonah, we know, was a successful prophet. He appears elsewhere in the Bible in 2 Kings chapter 14. There, under the reign of King Jeroboam, we learn that the boundaries of Israel were restored in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hepha. There, Jonah prophesied about the strength and restoration of God's people, Israel, and it came to pass, and you imagine it made Daddy proud. But what of these events in the book of Jonah? This is a very different mission. Jonah being sent into a pagan nation, an enemy state, to preach to the masses there. That's strange, isn't it? And then called by God to go there, he tries to do the very opposite. That's even more dodgy. What would Jonah's dad make of it? What would it do to his reputation? This whole situation is a little bit fishy. Well, as Jonah said to the sailors, let me dive in. Uh, I'm going to suggest that this chapter here is all about witnessing to the Lord. And there's a contrast. I think there are some don'ts and some do's, some what not to do's and some what to do's. So the first of two headings for our time together, how to be a bad witness to the Lord, how to be a bad witness to the Lord I've got three tips from Jonah. Here's the first. Decide to disobey God's word. 
It is really striking how quickly things go wrong for Jonah. Uh, Look down, Jonah 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord. The book starts like so many of the introductions and the sections of the Old Testament prophets. God's word comes to them. They're called to speak his words to others. And as a basic rule, that's what they do. Some are reluctant. Isaiah seeks cleansing before he can speak the holy oracles of God. Jeremiah is generally miserable about his calling, but he does at least obey. Jonah is unique among the prophets He directly and deliberately disobeys God's word. Called to go to Nineveh, he darts off in the other direction. Nineveh was a capital city of the Assyrian Empire, very close to what is now modern-day Mosul in Iraq. Jonah sets out for Tarshish, probably somewhere on the far side of the Mediterranean. In 2007, the girl group, the Spice Girls, were planning a reunion tour. A competition was held where the public could vote for a city that would host a date on the tour. Well, you can guess where this is going. A campaign was started to prank the system by voting in large numbers to send the Spice Girls to Baghdad. Sadly, in the end, Toronto got slightly more votes, and so they went there instead. Now, I share that with you simply because one day you'll be in a pub quiz and you'll be asked, what do the Spice Girls have in common with the prophet Jonah? And now you know what the answer is. Neither of them wanted to go to Iraq. But there's a serious point here. There's a serious point. Nineveh was a nasty place, particularly for an Israelite. The experts reckon that it was the biggest city in the world at the time. The Assyrian Empire was certainly the big superpower of the day. The Assyrians were legendary enemies of the people of God. They were brutal in their military campaigns. They were famous for flaying their captives, literally for skinning them alive. You can head just down the road there to the British Museum and see all of the freezers and the carvings that they made celebrating their cruelty. So when God says, go to the great city of Nineveh, You imagine there are two reasons why Jonah might not. Firstly, of course, simple self-preservation. Who wants to be a prophet of doom to a notorious regime? But secondly, and as Jonah himself indicates in chapter 4, more importantly, he doesn't believe these people deserve to hear God's word. He would rather leave them in their sin and in ignorance about God. So when called, he decides to disobey God's word. How to be a bad witness to the Lord, decide to disobey God's word. Uh, Secondly, try to hide from God's presence. The geography helps us here. Uh, As we track Jonah's physical movements, we get a sense of his spiritual journey too. Tim Keller sums it up artfully. He writes of Jonah, called to go east, he went west. Directed to travel over land, he went to sea. Sent to the big city, he bought a one-way ticket to the end of the world. The language is smoothed over a bit in the English translation, but the original Hebrew is quite deliberate that Jonah keeps going down. 
He went down to Joppa to catch a boat. Then he went down to the inner part of the boat. Then he laid down to go to sleep. Down, down, down. He's running from God. This is what sin always does to us. Disobeying God takes us down and down and down. Sin puts distance between us and God. And maybe you know that feeling of being down and down and in the depths as you've heard God's word and have sought to do the opposite. That's where we are next week in Jonah chapter 2. For now though, we need to notice that you can run from God, but you can't hide from him. Jonah discovers that even sleeping in the bottom of a boat. What happens? Well, verse 4, then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. God was making his presence known. Which brings us to our third tip for how to be a bad witness to the Lord. It is this, refuse to recognise God's mercy. The storm has come upon the boat and we know it's a big one because these sailors are used to storms at sea, but they fear for their lives in this one. They do what they can to steady the ship, but eventually the captain wakes Jonah and challenges him. Verse 6, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. It's a moment of dramatic irony. Here's a prophet who has just been sent to tell pagan people to call out to the Lord. He himself is trying to hide from the Lord. And amazingly, the Lord arranges things so that pagan people end up telling him to call out to the Lord. These sailors don't know much, but they see this storm as a sign of judgment and they invite Jonah to turn around from his disobedience, to call out to God for mercy, to obey him, to go the way he calls In a wonderful irony, they become the evangelists to the evangelists. If you're a Christian here, I'm sure you'll know that experience of doing something or saying something that prompts your non-Christian friends or colleagues to respond, you aren't supposed to do that, or that's not very Christian of you. And we can prickle at that. We can feel it's wrong for them to call us out on our behaviour But if that's us, maybe there's a challenge to us here. Maybe it's from an unconventional source, but it is undeniable that God's mercy is on offer to Jonah here. He doesn't recognise it for what it is, but we needn't be so foolish. The Bible scholar Douglas Mao writes on this some challenging words. He writes, sometimes the world preaches important messages to the church. It's important to listen carefully lest we miss some good sermons. Even in the mouths of pagan sailors, the Lord gave Jonah the opportunity to respond to the message of his mercy. He refused to recognise it. That is how to be a bad witness to the Lord. Well, our time is almost up and I'm conscious that I've spent this long talking about what not to do. There are some constructive lessons in this chapter though and for that we need to turn our attention to the sailors. So here and more briefly is how to be a good witness to the Lord. How to be a good witness to the Lord. 
Uh, The storm comes up. The ship is threatening to break up. The sailors are fearing for their lives. Verse 5, all the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. We're met with a life or death situation. The sailors are forced to face facts. The cargo that they're carrying is of no use to them if they're not alive to deliver it to their destination. If the ship goes down, it's of no value at all. If it stays on the ship, it might take them down with it. So they throw it overboard. They reason that stuff won't help them. It's between them and the gods now. So they cry out to their gods, to these pagan gods. They find that they are of no help to them either. Faced with a storm that threatens their lives, their man-made gods are, as Jonah will call them in chapter 2, worthless idols. They're powerless. They can't save them. This storm had been sent by the Lord, verse 4. Literally, the word is provided by the Lord. It's a sign of his judgment against sin and the only hope in the face of it is that the Lord himself intervenes in the rescue. The sailors are facing the biggest storm of their life. They know that they're looking for something more, something greater. They draw lots. The lots fall on Jonah and they ask him there in verse 8, tell us, Who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answers, verse 9, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And notice the sailor's response in verse 10. This terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. These pagan sailors, they believed in little gods. If this part of my life is not going well, I'll pray to that God about it. Jonah's claim here is that he believes in the God who reigns in heaven and over the earth, who made the land and the sea. What surprises the sailors is that Jonah would claim to believe in such a big God and then disobey him in such a big way. If you believe that you're running away from the God who made the sea, why did you get on a boat? More to the point, they must be thinking, why did you have to get on our boat? The Lord intervenes in this situation. He uses the pagan sailors to invite Jonah to change course, but of course Jonah chooses not to. He concludes that he would rather face the storm of God's judgment on his own outside the boat rather than to turn around to say sorry, to obey God's word as he had heard it. But the sailors, the sailors by contrast, well, look at them. They do their best to row to land but to no avail. And by now they believe what Jonah has said about his God and they cry out to him by name by the special covenant name of the Lord. They seek mercy from him. They do as Jonah says and toss him overboard and they see the storm of judgment quelled. It's not for nothing that they responded to all of this by offering sacrifices. 
They know that they've been saved. And in a small way, as Jonah has gone overboard to face this storm of judgment, they've seen that sin has consequences before God. They've seen acted out in front of them the decision that faces each one of us as we hear God's word and see him revealed before us. We can face God's judgment ourselves alone or we can turn to him in repentance and faith. We can call on his name and seek his mercy and find both forgiveness and peace with God there. How does all of this come about? How does it work through? Well, please come back next week as we see the story unfold. But as I close, let me take us forward 700 years or so from these events to another group of seasoned sailors on a boat in a storm. Here is Jesus aboard a boat with his disciples. And like Jonah, he's fast asleep as a storm is raging around them. Here is Mark chapter 4. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And at this moment, the disciples, just as the sailors in Jonah's day, were hoping for some human help for what they really needed, divine intervention. Teacher, they call him. Wise man, they might say. Prophet even. Don't you care if we drown? And Jesus shows not just that he cares about their deepest need, but that he is uniquely able to do something about it. Mark goes on. He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. The disciples there were terrified after the storm had been stilled. They were only afraid before. And the same is true of the sailors in Jonah chapter 1. They were afraid in verse 5, but greatly feared in verse 16. Literally there, they feared a great fear. Both these groups of sailors had cried out for help. Both of them saw God intervene. The parallels are obvious and I think deliberate. But I think what Mark shows us is the how of God's rescue. He shows us the Lord Jesus with a word calming the storm, doing what only God can do. And therefore, he shows how God himself has stepped into human history to save his people in their great distress. No longer just a prophet to point to God's rescue, but the great rescuer himself. No wonder Jesus spoke of himself as one greater than Jonah. And we'll think on more on that next week. For now, it's a question of which choice we're going to make. How are we going to respond to God's word, to his call? We can disobey it. We can run away from it. We can refuse to recognize his offer of mercy in it. Or we can turn to him 
and call on his name and find both forgiveness and peace with God. Which is it going to be?